Hello, and welcome back to Hidden Narratives, brought to you by Watcher Entertainment. I'm your host, Stephen Lim, and we will be sharing really important but untold stories from the Asian American community. In this episode, we're talking Andrew Yang, a political figure who has inspired me in many ways and who I have even endorsed. But today, we're going to be uncovering why Andrew Yang has hurt so many Asian Americans in his recent op-ed. And to be frank, I really hope he's listening. But before we get into that, let me explain. So on April 1st, Yang wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post that argues Asian Americans need to combat racism by showing our quote-unquote Americanness by stepping up and helping our neighbors donating gear, voting, and even wearing red, white, and blue. And this, rightfully so, pissed off many Asian Americans because we have been fighting for so long to shed the model minority myth. We don't need to prove that we're American. We are American. But perhaps the most painful point he made was an uneducated misrepresentation of the Japanese-American soldiers from World War II. Now, as someone who supports Yang, I was hurt by his words, but also I was hurt to see the way that he was dragged all over Twitter. And that is why I wanted to just open this conversation up. So I reached out to my guest today, Taylor Week. Taylor is a Japanese-American writer who has written for publications such as NBC Asian America, Teen Vogue, and Slanted. She shares a really unique perspective on why Yang's comments not only misrepresent Asian-Americans, but tap into the trauma dating back to the incarceration camps from World War II. And I'll just level with you here. This conversation is a heavy one, but it is so important to be had. One last thing, uh, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and write us a review on wherever you listen because that is how we will keep the show going. And without further ado, I present to you my conversation with Taylor Week. Hi, Taylor. Hi, Steven. How's it going? Doing well. <laughs> how about you? Uh, I'm okay. I'm okay. I want to say, first off, thank you so much for jumping on this call. Some context for our listeners. I actually saw that you wrote an article for NBC Asian America that details a really thoughtful response to Andrew Yang's op-ed. And so I wanted to talk to you directly about that and kind of get your uh, perspective on it. Yeah, I'm happy to contribute. Thanks for having me as a part of your podcast. Yeah, definitely. And I guess we'll get right into it. So Andrew Yang wrote an op-ed that discusses the current climate of racism against Asian Americans. And I think the most controversial statement to come out of his op-ed was the way that he cited the Japanese American community. And I'll just read it here. During World War II, Japanese Americans volunteered for military duty at the highest possible levels to demonstrate that they were Americans. Now many in the Asian American community are stepping up, trying to demonstrate that we can be a part of the solution. So when you first read this op-ed and, and that statement in particular, what was the way that you were feeling as somebody who comes from the Japanese American community? First, I was a little bit confused. And then I think I was rereading that paragraph over and over again, kind of trying to figure out what it was he was trying to say, because he's referring to the 442nd Regimental unit and the 100th Battalion, which were uh, all Japanese American segregated units that fought in World War II. And so I, I understood that reference, but I think what was a little bit confusing was that he used them as an example of bravery and patriotism that us Asian Americans today should aspire to. 
Um, I think, however, where it started to rub me a little bit the wrong way was that what he omits from this paragraph is that those Japanese Americans, some of them did volunteer in the beginning, but many were drafted uh, into the military and many of them were refusing the draft because mm. at the same time, over 110,000 Japanese Americans were in camps and they were essentially in prison. I felt that it would be dangerous for him to make this reference knowing that there are countless people who don't know the whole story. Yeah, let's let's actually break it down even more. Can you detail what actually happened? Because from just reading it, it would seem like, you know, if somebody who did not have any context of this would be like, oh, wow, okay, great. Like Japanese Americans, they volunteered to be American and to risk their lives for this country. But that's obviously far from the truth. Right. So by the time that the units were formed, Japanese Americans were already in camps. So this was already post Pearl Harbor. This was post when Executive Order 9066 was passed. So that was the order that allowed for Japanese Americans to be imprisoned. And mm. actually, even, even before this, there were Japanese Americans who were already serving in the army at the time that Pearl Harbor was attacked. And as a result, a lot of these Japanese Americans, even though they were Americans and they were already in the army, weren't trusted with their weapons and had their weapons taken away, actually. Oh, wow. And then many in, who were serving in Hawaii and were actually helping with the recovery unit on Pearl Harbor were actually discharged. So that, that is the, the basis of this. So mm. now we fast forward. The U.S. Army formed these segregated units. So they were all Japanese American. Mm. And they sold this as a way for people to demonstrate their patriotism to give back to their country. And at first, they opened it up to volunteers. And a lot of people on the mainland in the camps volunteered as a way to show their loyalty. And there were actually a lot of people who were in Hawaii that, that volunteered. And those the people in Hawaii who were Japanese-American were not put in camps over there. Mm. But then eventually they began drafting. And so those young Asian American men who were in camp were not given a choice. They were required to enlist. And if they were to refuse the draft or dissent as a small minority of them did, uh, they were arrested. And why were the people who were being drafted, why were they compelled to resist going and serving? There are documents of groups of resistors at each of the 10 camps that were run by the, the War Relocation Authority. And the reasons why they refused to serve was that they felt it was wrong to fight for a country that didn't trust them and that put their families in camps. Mm. These Japanese Americans were Americans, and uh, it is undeniable today that they had their constitutional rights revoked and violated when they were herded up and put in camps. And a lot of these dissenters, this was their form of protest. Right. And I even want to go further back because I think we definitely gloss over this in history when we talk about the internment camps that caused and imprisoned uh, so many Japanese Americans. Like, why did the government even issue this executive order in the first place? Sure. So a lot of this began with when Pearl Harbor was bombed by Japan on December 7th, 1941. As a result of that, there was a lot of anti-Japanese racism occurring in the U.S. You know, mm. some of these people had already been here for generations. A lot of these people were Americans, but because they resembled the enemy, people didn't trust them. And as a result, Franklin D. Roosevelt passed Executive Order 9066 in 1942. 
And that is what sent over 110,000 Japanese Americans to the 10 camps on the mainland. And also, from my understanding, they also took away pretty much all of their possessions. So Japanese American families were only allowed to bring what they could carry with them to camp. So a lot of families could only bring maybe two suitcases two, for that whole family. You know, and so just imagine trying to figure out what things in your life are most precious that you should bring and what should remain behind. A lot of families with their own businesses and farms had to sell their farms, sell their businesses, leave their homes behind. There were a few lucky families that had neighbors that agreed to run the farms for them in their absence or look after their homes. But a lot of these families lost everything. And even when the war ended and it came back, there was no home for them to return to. Some of their, their cars that they left behind had been stolen. You know, their houses had been ransacked. And these families had to essentially rebuild their lives uh, post-war. Yeah. And how were they treated when they were um, imprisoned in those camps? In camps, uh, a lot of documents that are they can be accessed online by anyone today show in diary entries and in oral histories that conditions in all these camps were really poor. A lot yeah. of these camps were built in really desolate areas, like in deserts, kind of in the marsh areas. So the summers were really, really hot and the winters were unforgiving. And a lot of these buildings that were built as barracks kind of to, to house these families were pretty shoddy. Um, there were dirt floors. There was no insulation. And a lot of these families slept on cots. Families had to live in one room together. So everybody was pretty cramped. The, the mess hall, the food was subpar. A lot of these Japanese American families were given simply canned goods. And so they had to think of creative ways to season their food or make it taste better. Uh, you know, even the toilets, there were no private stalls. Every All the toilets were lined up. So if you had to go to the bathroom, you had to do it in front of everybody. Mm, wow. You know, at face value, you would hope and want everything to be straightforward. But when you really dig into it, it's not. And, and then you dig deeper and there's just more and more. And you're like, if I didn't know all of this, then I really wouldn't get any of it. Because, you know, when, when it first came out, I was immediately in a few group chats with my friends discussing, like, what is going on? Like, how should we feel? Is it okay to be mad? Is it okay to not be mad? You know, with you and your community... What was the overall tone of the reaction from people that you were interacting with? Particularly amongst Japanese Americans, it felt more personal because by Andrews Yang saying that we need to show our Americanness, I think it reminded so many of us of what our community, our, our grandparents and great grandparents were also told when they went to camp. And, you know, I think this is an issue that a lot of Asian Americans might have with Andrew Yang is that his words, while, you know, great intentions in the article, you know, he does want to fight racism. He does strive to be a voice for Asian Americans. I think his words seem to lack a cultural awareness of certain Asian Americans histories. You know, there was this one woman, um, Renee Tajima Pena, who I interviewed for the article, who posted on Twitter uh, a story about Daniel Inoue, who was the U.S. Senator of Hawaii. 
And he actually was the face of patriotism his whole life. You know, um, he was in Hawaii and the day of Pearl Harbor, he actually was a medical volunteer. He was so inspired to fight for his country that immediately after he stopped studying pre-med and enlisted in the army, mm. he was a part of the 442nd, quickly rose to the ranks, became a sergeant. You know, he lost his right hand to a gr- grenade. He ended up getting the Medal of Honor. And then so after all of this, you know, Daniel is in Oakland after the war and he's going to a barber to get his hair done, dressed in full ma- military uniform. He's missing his right hand and the barber won't serve him because he's Japanese. Mm. So mm. I think that when Andrew says these things, I think a lot of people think of stories about that, about how being patriotic and doing our best to not rock the boat has not helped us, mm. has not saved us from racism. Hmm. Yeah, I. Well, first of all, thank you so much for sharing that story. I, I can see where this frustration is coming from, and I, I do want to ask: Do you think that the lashback on Andrew Yang has gone too far? I mean, I can just read uh, Eddie Huang's tweet, which was one of the more vicious attacks on him, and he said, "Told y'all, Andrew Yang is a kowtowing Uncle Chan. F out of here with this American drag." You actually think a country with a president that uses the term China virus will ever see you as one of them because you wore red, white, and blue, you bumbling pineapple bun. And this tweet, it, it, it broke my heart because I'm seeing the Asian American community start to divide. And, and you know, for what seemed like so much progress is being made recently, th- this felt like another step backward where we couldn't even agree among ourselves. And so I wonder, from your perspective, do you see the validity of what Eddie is saying? Yeah, I do. And, you know, now that I've had more time to think about it, and even after reading Andrew Yang's response in Next Year, mm-hmm. which we can talk about in a bit, yeah, I think the main issue here, it's not that we misunderstood his language. It's not that he was just a little bit off. I think the main fact is that Andrew Yang is calling for Asian Americans to respond to, you know, white supremacy and racism against Asian Americans by trying our best by, mm. you know, he says, he says, oh, you know, I, by, by wearing red, white, and blue, I mean, you know, we're to be, to volunteer, you know, to give back, to help your fellow Americans. Mm. Do you think his language was too harsh? I mean, that's Eddie. I feel like I, you know, I, <laughs> I do follow him on Twitter. I see how he, yeah. You know, um, and you know, I think it comes, he's, he's angry, you know, and mm-hmm. rightfully so. I do have my own thoughts on, on Twitter culture and people canceling <laughs> people when they make mistakes and things like that. But I understand where that emotion comes from. You know, it comes from realizing that this is a man who has a lot of power right now. He has a platform that he can actually use to create change, that he can use to inspire and educate his supporters. Mm -hmm. But I think there's a lot of anger in seeing that he is using this to perpetuate this idea that we have to appeal to white America, to, to the majority, by showing that we are great or that we are contributing. I mean, that's that's straight up the model minority myth. Mm. Yeah, let's let's talk about the response um, because that is something that when when okay when he first wrote the op-ed, I was like, this is not good, Andrew. Please like say something. And then it's been you know a few days, and finally he's come out on Next Shark. I can go ahead and read for our listeners 
what he said in response to the backlash. He wrote, I was deeply struck as a young person by both the oppression and internment of Japanese Americans during World War II and the courage displayed by Japanese Americans who were members of the 442nd. It's one of the greatest untold stories in American history. I feel terrible that people saw that reference as anything other than reverential and equally terrible if people feel that their incredible sacrifice and selflessness did not have a positive impact. It certainly impacted me positively when I read about it in high school and stuck with me ever since, as did the national shame of the imprisonment, unfairness, and racism experienced by the Japanese during that time. But this goes to show that situations can't just be looked at through one side. There are many. And we have a responsibility to know them and present them holistically. I was wrong to not represent that better, given the complicated nature of the topic. Yeah, so I think you alluded to it earlier where you said it wasn't enough. Um, do you mind expounding on that? Yeah, so this gets me to thinking about the Japanese American Citizens League, which is a, a civil rights organization that is still around today. And it's probably the biggest, most influential Japanese American organization in the United States. Um, the JCL was pretty involved with the Japanese American camp experience. At the time of World War II, Mike Masaoka was the executive secretary of the JCL, and him and other JCL leadership cooperated with the U.S. government during World War II. And, you know, being seen as the leaders, they encouraged Japanese Americans to comply with orders and to go to camps willingly. So Mike Masaoka's stance was very assimilationist. Mm -hmm. And he's so controversial in our community to this day because of that. I think a lot of children of those who were in camps felt like Mike Masaoka and the JCL being influential and having ties to the government should have fought to prevent Japanese Americans from going to camp. Mm. So I think a lot of people felt that he betrayed the community, even though he, he had great intentions. He wanted right. his community to demonstrate that like there's nothing to fear, but as, but as a result, you know, he placed the responsibility and the burden of making white America trust Japanese Americans on the Japanese Americans when that shouldn't have been their job. You know, during the war and after the war, Japanese American families were encouraged or encouraged their children to stop speaking Japanese mm. because they thought that if they spoke Japanese around um, other around the white majority, that that people would look at them as an enemy or be uncomfortable so in this way, now you have Japanese Americans who are fourth, fifth generation Japanese American, and they don't know any Japanese. Mm. And so a lot of that comes from the generational trauma of feeling that they had to prove their Americanness to be accepted and to, to not be attacked. You know, these people feared for their safety in this country when they'd been there for generations. Yeah, I really do appreciate your honesty and candidness around that. Um, where do we go from here? <laughs> like, what is what do you hope to see come out of this? Because at the very least, I have been very grateful to see the the number of conversations that have come out of um, the back and forth of this op-ed. Seeing how divided people are, are, are on this topic, I think there needs to be some sort of way to meet in the middle. Um, in Little Tokyo, in LA, we have something, the community has something called a shoes off policy that we just apply to everybody who is new and wants to get involved or use our resources or institutions. Mm. So this means that you're welcome to use what we have to be in this space, to take up space. But if you want to take from this community, 
you also have responsibility to take your shoes off at the door, mm. which means you have to respect our community by learning about our history, our history of oppression. Like as an ethnic neighborhood, we are all here together because we mm. weren't allowed anywhere else, you know, to learn about our history of incarceration in the World War II, to learn about our current ongoing battle with gentrification to understand what we're fighting for. And I think that maybe that's what a lot of Asian Americans are now asking of Andrew Yang. Like, please take your shoes off at the door. I love that. I love that. Andrew Yang, take your shoes off. Not, <laughs> not your real shoes. Your your metaphorical, sociological shoes. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, Taylor. I really appreciate the conversation. So, and, and, you know, thank you for your time. So appreciate it. Thank you too. Thanks so much for having me. Honored to be here. Okay. I am now recording the reflections on my conversation with Taylor. I've just been wrestling with this for the past uh, week, but I really did not know how to feel when this article first came out because yes, I did not agree with Andrew Yang. And I think what he said was harmful to the Asian American community. But the thing that frustrated me is the way that Twitter came out and dragged him and his character, dismissing all of his accomplishments over this piece. All that being said, I do understand the outrage that came out of this conversation. And I really, really hope that Andrew Yang listens. And you know, as Taylor said, takes his shoes off and just hears people out. I do think that Andrew had the right intentions. I think that he was wrong in, in the way that he executed them, but I think he can learn. And I think we can all grow as a community. Anyway, uh, if you've gotten this far, then that means that you are a really good person. <laughs> no, that's not true. It means that you are supportive of our podcast. So please subscribe and also leave us a lovely rating of five stars as well as a review because that is how people find out about us and we want to keep the show going and i can't wait to talk to you all next week where we will be covering the ppe problem within our healthcare system bye everybody